The Second Crusade has failed, but its end will open the door to the Plantagenets, that brilliant, avaricious, rebellious, murderous family that will dominate the history of Western Europe for a century to come. Here's their story, so riveting that we still are fascinated by it 900 years later. Welcome back as we begin a new era in Lion's Forge. My name is Beckett, and I want to tell you a story, an epic true story of five kings and the Lion Queen. Season two, episode one, the most enticing bower. The second crusade had collapsed in the heat and blood outside Damascus, but Conrad of the Germans was still willing to keep trying. He proposed another try for Damascus, or even a simpler siege of a nearby Muslim port, a place called Ascalon that served as a base for Arab attacks on the kingdom of Jerusalem. His energy was misspent. No one had any interest in going with him. After six weeks of fruitless inactivity on the heels of the wretched retreat from the Barada River, Conrad left the Holy Land. He would spend the next six months making his way home. In a few short years, at the age of 59, bearers would hoist his shrouded corpse to their shoulders and take him to his grave. As for the French, Louis and his queen had been gone from France for more than two years by now. Suger wanted him back, sending worried warnings of a potential coup led by Louis's younger brother, Robert. But the royal couple stayed on and on in Jerusalem, month after month, even as the majority of the French crusaders said adieu and started for home. The king and queen had to be haunted by Antioch, restless, angry, troubled, and suspicious. They had dared so much at Vézelay, and they had lost it all. Louis had become a dashing figure for a while, transformed from the pious, rather dull former seminarian into a crusading king, the first European monarch ever to leave the comforts of home for possible death at the hands of the Muslims. The bewitching heiress he had married had starred in the role of his daring, spirited consort. Now all of that was as distant as Adam and Eve. Everything had gone wrong. The king and queen of France had been smeared with the greatest marital scandal of the era. And it was even worse than that. Not only was Louis humiliated by his wife, he'd failed his country. The crusading army of Vézelay reduced to men limping home from Mount Cadmos and Damascus. As for Eleanor, whatever she'd done honestly reported or not, led to a blanket prohibition against the presence of women on the next crusade. They finally left Jerusalem shortly after Easter, 1149, a sorry end to those heady scenes at Vézelay. As if to confirm all the ugly rumors about his marriage, Louis chose to travel separately from his wife, both king and queen were then caught up in sea battles between the Byzantines and their hated enemies, the Sicilians. Naval commanders on both sides 
would have taken down their sails and masts, yanked stray ropes and casks from the decks, and had their oarsmen pull the ships directly toward their foes, while archers, stone-throwers, and lancers fired away. The top-of-the-line Byzantine warships, the Dralmans, had towers attached to the main mast to give their fighters better range. The best of the best were equipped with the guided missiles of the day, state-of-the-art pressurized flamethrowers that spewed an evil-smelling gelatinous mixture of searing hot petroleum and resin called Greek fire at wooden ships and human skin. Some Dramans even had catapults on board that could punch a 20-pound rock through a ship's deck or a man's torso from a quarter mile away. What happened to the royal couple next is unclear. Traveling separately, the two landed far apart in miles and days. He apparently at Brundisi, on the east side of the Italian boot, she as much as two months later on the coast of Sicily. One does wonder what the estranged pair thought as each waited for news of the other, possibly fighting for survival that very hour against Byzantine warships, lashing storms, or even Barbary Coast pirates. There were rumors that Alianor's ship was driven so far off course by bad weather that it landed in North Africa and had to feel its way back. Both also must have heard the appalling news that handsome Raymond of Antioch was dead at Nur ad-Din's hands. Deprived of crusader support, Raymond had gone after his archenemy anyway. Chroniclers said that his attack on Nur had been literally suicidal, executed with the shrugging indifference of a man who didn't care whether he lived or died. His warrior's head and right arm were cut off, the head messengered in a silver box to the Caliph of Baghdad, where it adorned a wall. God, in his infinite wisdom, had allowed Raymond of Antioch to fall, but he had rescued the rulers of France from being lost at sea. Regrettably, he had not seen fit to provide the king and queen a viable resolution to their deeply troubled marriage. Louis chose to ignore the circling stories of their estrangement. He sent word to Suger after Eleanor at last arrived to meet him, putting a good face on things by saying that the queen had hurried to meet him with all joy. Eleanor reportedly collapsed from exhaustion not long after rejoining Louis, but the king did not say a single word to Suger about the physical and mental stress either spouse had endured even though he took the time to solicitously inquire after the health of a French bishop. Louis and Eleanor decided to drop their miserable problems in the Pope's lap. Eugenius was currently living in the thousand-year-old Roman-era resort of Tusculum, some fifteen miles from Rome's mobs. Cicero had once built a villa nearby, riding through the long, soft Italian afternoons, and now the Pope strolled Tusculum's gardens while listening to first one, then the other of the spouses, beg for his support. Eugenius, who greeted Louis as if he were welcoming an angel of the Lord rather than a mortal man, was not unaware of the gossip about Eleanor or of the couple's battle in Antioch. 
Suger had written him of it. According to John of Salisbury, who was a secretary at the papal court at the time, Louis still expressed what Eugenius considered passionate love for his wife, while Eugenius himself was naturally a strong proponent of the sanctity of marriage. He was also in a position to dispense the couple from church laws about consanguinity, that technical problem known to be an issue in the Capet's marriage, the one Eleanor had used in Antioch to argue for dissolution of their union. But, like a father talking to quarrelsome children, his advice entirely colored by the innocence of a monastic life, Eugenius advised that they reconcile. Eleanor was told that her kinship to Louis was an admitted fact, yes, but that God forgave it, just a minor flaw in their marriage. There would be no annulment. She was to return to her husband. Eugenius, in turn, apparently counseled Louis that, wronged or not, he should take her back in the spirit of true Christian charity, a conclusion that John of Salisbury felt plainly delighted the king. Eugenius even painstakingly wrote out that under pain of anathema, that papal curse that would result in absolute exclusion from the spiritual power of the church, no word should be spoken against the marriage, which was not to be dissolved under any pretext whatever. Eugenius splendidly reinforced his view of the matter by betting his guests their last night in Tusculum in a special bridal bower constructed at his behest. The sights and scents of that pretty bed, with its tapestries from the Pope's palace, its cascades of flowers, scented candles, and twining leafy vines, must have had powers of almost magical enchantment. When Eleanor rose from it the next morning, she was pregnant. Nonetheless, miraculous conception or not, the couple's emotional turmoil, compounded of dislike on her side and mistrust on his, remained. Blocked from any solution to their troubles, they left Tusculum and traveled on to Rome, where Louis was offered the keys to the city and taken to see all the Roman shrines and churches. He might as well spend as much time playing tourist amid the glories of Rome as he could. What lay ahead was return to life in Paris that paltry little town of drab wooden walls and garbage in the streets, where everyone would be obsessed with whether the queen had cuckolded the king. Salacious gossip wasn't all they faced. Historian John Riley Smith, writing about the aftermath of the First Crusade of fifty years before, paints a picture of what Louis and his unhappy queen probably found at every turn when they returned to their kingdom in the fall of 1149. The First Crusade had been a triumph for the West, but it still had taken a heavy toll. All too many Crusaders had never come home. Many veterans who did return were disabled, whether for a season or for life, by mental trauma, physical wounds, exhaustion, and the effects of prolonged starvation. Today, We'd call it post-traumatic stress. Many others suffered for years from the delirious fevers of typhoid or debilitating, energy-sapping malaria, which one veteran of a 20th-century war said felt like being burned alive, 
sunstorms flaring through every tendon and nerve from inside. Sick and troubled men had a hard time finding their feet when there was no security net beneath them, no insurance, no government pension, little except the unpredictable charity of the day. The economy also took heavy blows. Loans taken to raise crusader cash had to be repaid, which could burden everyone. The owner of the only bridge for miles might decide a good way to settle his debts was to double the toll. Local violence had had few checks, heating ugly feuds. Weeds and saplings had crept into fields. Stone walls were buckling. Roofs had been peeled by winter storms. Vassals who had pledged lifelong fealty had been caught up in rebellious plots against absent lords. After pouring so much effort and so much treasure into their crusade, most veterans faced little but an endless future of hard, hard work just to get back to where they had been before the great trumpet had called to them. Given our relatively easy wealth, we forget that most people alive in centuries past were so sadly short of resources that recovery from hard times could take entire generations. By way of example, one French village, presumably having benefited from centuries of human progress, was still struggling to finish repairing hailstorm damage that dated back to the 1860s when the 20th century dawned. The worst was the suffocating blanket of mass guilt, worry, and doubt that now tormented Europe. God couldn't be at fault, so it had to be that the men who had struggled through Dorylaeum, through Mount Cadmos, through Damascus, had brought calamity on their own heads. Their failures had to be caused by unredeemed sin. No one was immune, but the French probably suffered the most. The chronicler William of Tyre wrote dismally, It remains a mystery why our Lord should permit the Franks, who of all people in the world most honor him, to be destroyed by their enemies. Bernard of Clairvaux, stung by embittered criticism, deflected his own shame by blaming a sin-ridden people for the debacle. If you were thoughtful and pious, his lashing rebukes made the burden of failure all the heavier. Yet amid all the sad wastage of this doomed crusade, even in the midst of all the gossip about Antioch, Louis Capet was arguably never stronger as a king or a man than after he returned from Damascus. When he had left France for the Holy Land, he was considered putty in the hands of his importuning queen, who had left him standing amid the wreck of Vitry. He couldn't even point to an heir who might be looked to for a better future. But Louis taking the cross at Vézelay was unprecedented. Though his crusade would fail, his personal courage, his care for his men, and his unstinting generosity had impressed many of those who fought with him. Odo of Dieu wrote approvingly, He meets reverses with fortitude and knows that a king exists only to gain the common welfare. William of St. Denis, a monk and chronicler of the crusade, wrote feelingly of Louis, 
that men from the uttermost limits of the kingdom, from the limousine, from Bourges, from Poitou and Gascony, commended themselves to his protection, and he so satisfied them, sometimes by his aid, sometimes by his counsel, that they became devoted to their king. The Pope had kissed him goodbye at Tusculum, saying that Louis's domain was higher in his esteem than all the kingdoms of the world. In that bitterly cold winter of 1149, men had a new liking for and trust in him. Surely his queen would bear him a son. There was no other imaginable outcome for a pregnancy engineered by the Pope himself. In the summer of the following year, 1150, 26-year-old Eleanor of Aquitaine, Queen of France for 13 years, veteran of the Second Crusade, and subject of international gossip, gave birth to her second child. The baby conceived in the Pope's enticing bower was another little princess. The arrival of this baby girl was so disappointingly anticlimactic that her birthday hasn't survived. The dismissive chroniclers didn't bother with the month or the day. Louis must have been crushed that even the intervention of the Pope could not cause this queen to give him a boy. The entire kingdom, blessed with a continuous succession of male heirs since 987, began to fear the future. Without a son for Louis, plots, coups, treasons, the horror of outside attacks and civil wars were inevitable. The king was barely thirty, but younger men died every day, and the couple seemed able to produce a baby only once a decade. If the reliable chronicler John of Salisbury is to be believed, Louis had agreed after the marital storm at Antioch that he would end his politically valuable marriage if his counselors and the French nobility would agree to it. The stopover in Tusculum to meet with the Pope had brought a halt to further discussion when the Lady Queen became known to be pregnant. But now with the birth of a mere girl baby, the prospect of the dissolution of the French royal couple's union would be whispered in all the courts of Europe. Suger, however, first among Louis's counselors, stood by the marriage. He knew of the Pope's thinking. Under pain of anathema, no word should be spoken against the marriage, which should not be dissolved under any pretext whatever. And he understood with his usual grasp of political reality that not only would his beloved Capes lose the Aquitaine if Eleanor left, but she would automatically become an alarmingly unpredictable free agent. She would not stay single long, by choice or by force. Whatever Louis gave up, someone else would win. Fifty years of painstaking work by Louis Le Gros and his son, of setbacks, struggle, hard-won successes, could be undone in an afternoon. And this couple, after all, was still young. They weren't infertile. Another baby could come the next year. And while they conceived and gave birth again, and even again and again if need be, the world would continue to change in unforeseeable ways. Troublesome lords could die. Other marriages could consolidate the holdings of noble houses to favor the Capes, 
Just keep on, Suger would say to his anxious king. Just keep on. And Louis did keep on. He still cared enough for Eleanor not to send her to a convent for the rest of her days. If the old churchman, Louis's key and most trusted advisor, had lived, history may well have been different. But even ageless Suger couldn't live forever. He died the following January. Louis now had other advisors, less patient, more impassioned. One among them was Thierry Gallerin, not a supporter of the Provencal Queen. It's not hard to imagine the newer arguments. If things went on as they were, the Capetian dynasty and everything it had earned could very well die with Louis. And even if the Aquitanienne were to be free to leave, all she seemed capable of breeding was girl after girl. Let her go. The Pope himself had tried to bring him a son with this woman and had failed. Besides, Louis could marry any noble lady in Christendom. There were other domains that could be won. Let her go. Once again, there is no historical record as to Eleanor's thoughts. We believe, of course, that she'd been the one to raise the idea of annulment, in Antioch and again in Tusculum. And we can be duly impressed, since we know of no other noblewoman throughout the entire century who determined on her own to end a marriage. Eleanor, gossiped about, scorned for giving birth to nothing but daughters, rarely happy with this man in the cold mists of riverbound Paris, now showed the kind of absolutely bulldog determination that would mark her for the rest of her life. Every day, at every meeting with her husband, she must have repeated the same refrain he got from his new advisors. End it. Let us end it. The ultimate outcome was entirely in Louis' hands, but sheer persistence has its uses, and while she hammered away at this chance to shed the past, she had to give thought to her future. Leaving a man and a country she didn't love were only the beginning of the decisions that would have to be made. What she didn't know, not then, was that her life, in such apparent disarray, presented the golden fates with an opportunity, and they swiveled in the direction of the same arrogant, aggressive, and ambitious people plaguing the Byzantines and loathed by the Germans. They were called Normans, brawny, brawling mongrels, half French, half Viking raiders, bought off with land in the north of France a couple of centuries before. The Normans were just the people to produce a man who could take Eleanor to his bed and change the course of history. The man's name was Henry Plantagenet. Like Eleanor, he came from rich, tough, powerful, lusty, and intelligent stock. He was brash, crude, and as energetic as a typhoon. He will become a power to be reckoned with. We've come to the end of our story for the time being. I am Beckett Arnold, narrating from the book Lion's Forge, adapted for us by the author Karen Markle Knapp. A big thank you to Francis Butt for voicing our introduction. If you like what you hear, please give us a rating, follow our channel, and share us with your friends. Most importantly, 
please join us again December 11th for the next episode of Lion's Forge. Available everywhere you get your favorite podcasts, streaming on YouTube with video episode trailers, and on Facebook, where you can ask questions, leave reviews, and interact with me. Until next time, thank you for listening.